This podcast is brought to you with limited interruption by Rudy Luther Toyota. Whether looking for an exciting brand new Toyota, a certified pre-owned vehicle, or getting quality routine maintenance and service for your vehicle, Rudy Luther Toyota is the place to go. Rudy Luther Toyota, the southeast corner of 394 and 169 in Golden Valley. Subscribe to the podcast Beyond Politics. They host some of the biggest names and smartest minds. Beyond Politics is from a former Democratic congressman who helped ignite Barack Obama's campaign and a former campaign manager and political columnist. They go beyond the usual chatter on politics, news, science, and books. It's politics and everything beyond. On Beyond Politics, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Broadcasting live on AM 950, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota, and in the evening on WCPT 820 Chicago's Progressive Talk, it is the Matt McNeil Show for your Monday. Good to be with you today. Matt and Patrick here today. Patrick, how are you, my friend? Doing pretty well. I was pretty busy with the hockey stuff Saturday, and I'm not going to talk about the game. I'm going to talk about something that happened during the game, and I won't name the school, but... A goalie came out and started just whomping on somebody with his glove, and I've never seen that. It was pretty <laughs> wild. Uh, I'm presuming there was a five-minute major that was awarded on that. Yes, and uh, he uh, he got an early uh, an early exit for that. <laughs> so I'm guessing the game wasn't going well for him. It was. It was actually his team won. I just don't. I don't it was just kind of out. Nobody really wanted to keep things under control. Um, uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm going to guess that there's probably not going to be much in the way of, uh, of, uh, opportunities for him later on. So, uh, all my best to you, son. Uh, you know, go team go. Uh, yeah, you want to, might want to talk to a counselor about something like that. Uh, 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. I had an interesting, uh, thing happen to me. On Saturday night, I went to um, I, you know, I went out to a, an evening out. I, I'll just say it like this: it was a, a big you know, shindig. How about I say it like that? It was a big, big shindig, and it was, it was fairly large, like about five hundred people. Not a wedding or anything like that. It was a, uh, you know, it was, it was it's a little bit of a corporate thing. And I was out there, and it was. I've been to this before. It is actually a pretty nice deal. They do a lot for uh, this company does a lot for its employees and it's it really is nice and so we're out there lovely you know for you know nice food uh, you know they had it wasn't an open bar but it was you know everyone got drink tickets so you're pretty much an open bar i mean unless you're really knocking them back and i i went there and they do caricatures they got bingo they got poker games they have comedians magicians i mean i'm serious there's like a, there's a lottery you could win a bunch of prizes it's a lot of fun there's a lot of things that are going on so when we we apparently the the company had sent a message that said they were going to have the the football game on the Saturday night football game on because it involved the Green Bay Packers and you know mm-hmm. folks in Illinois know that there's you know there are a few Packer fans around so you know you 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 know they said we're going to have the San Francisco Green Bay Packer game on now they did not have a TV on last year and I not I don't know if there was any relevant games or anything like that. They, they could have, I imagine. It was a, also on a Saturday night, so I imagine there was a, a football playoff game that last year that was going on at the same time. And I just want to... It, it was interesting 
how much less I enjoyed the event with the TV on. Now, I, I, I am not a big fan of going to restaurants or bars where there's a TV in every direction unless I'm specifically going to there to watch a game. And I want to watch that game or something like this. But I've, I, there have been places and times in my life where I've gone into restaurants and, and, and bars and stuff, and it's like there's, there's so many TVs on. And it's like I said, you're not going there necessarily for it, but someone's watching. You know, you can't almost – it's impossible to have a conversation with someone because we live we, – we are so frenetic nowadays because of these little glowing rectangles we all have in our pockets. We have become a society where either we stay inside and don't socially interact, or when we socially interact, if we, we, we have a tendency of being distracted easily. And, and, and I am just as guilty as everyone else. I am. And so, you know, you had this going on. And like I said, this is a fun event. Lots to do. It's not like there isn't a lot of things to do. And plus, like I said, you know, you know everyone got a few drinks. Off you go. And it was interesting to see how the event got basically sidetracked. I'd say a quarter of the people there went over and were watching the game, which, you know, okay, fine. So once again, and that's, a, that's kind of one of those things which is a direct impact. It's the amount of people who are no longer trying to interact with their friends or their coworkers or anything that says it's they're sitting there watching a game that they have been basically taken out that the only conversation they're having is about the game or about Packers or about the the 49ers or whatever the case may be, or if they were a fan of another team, but they were, they were actively watching the game, which took out, like I said, about a quarter of the the people, a, a majority of which were male. But the residual of that was pretty remarkable because even though I, I really didn't care that much about the game, I wasn't really watching it, it was one of those things where all of a sudden when that group of people were like, oh, you know, like, oh, you know, like, okay, what just happened? I mean, it was it, it really overrode everything else, and everyone else in the place was turning like, what's going on over there? And it, it became a major distraction to everyone, even the people who weren't watching the game, it was a major distraction. It became one of those things where, you know, you could tell there were people that were not having a really good time because people were just more focused on, even if they weren't watching the game directly, they were, you know, kind of the slowing down for the traffic, the, the, the car accident sort of thing. And, yeah, it is, it is, it, it was tough. And even people who were kind of accepting it, it all of a sudden became so. I, the, the, my, my my wife was there, and we are there, and she is talking to a coworker, and neither of them are watching the game. But what was the conversation about? It's like, oh, is, is your husband here? Oh, he's over watching the game. Oh, is he a big football fan? Oh, yeah, it was. So even even the residual conversations where people who clearly weren't caring about the game all of a sudden became the game. And I just don't think people realize it. Last year that they had, like I mentioned, they had bingo, which was a lot of fun. And you couldn't get a seat last year. This year I went in there and it was about two-thirds full. It still was relatively full. But you could easily sit down and get a seat this time because I'm guessing a lot of the people that were in there were over watching the game. And I, and I, and I, I just want to say, we, I get it, that there is, there's this world, there's this culture out there 
that push, pushes us to you know you know football sports they're they're just hand in hand with your life and they're not actually you know unless you are a player or a owner or a coach or someone who covers the team directly it really doesn't mean it. and the fact that we have a society that can't turn that off and realize, oh, it's just a game. But we, the, the fact that they they put the game on, and I get it. It's it's probably someone was someone in charge of the event was a big fan and didn't want to miss the game. And okay, fine. But it really kind of I don't want to say ruined it because it was still fun. It just was not nearly as much fun as it was the year before. We have to learn how to turn that stuff off. And I think that we 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 have to learn how to turn that stuff off. And stop caring about because it, it, it who who cares? And like I said, this is this just shows you how frenetic we have all become when it comes to these glowing rectangles. I mean, who cares about a football game? Period. I mean, who cares? It, it, you can watch the recap. You can watch the game over again on the NFL Network. You can read about it incessantly. You can look. You can bet on it. You can do all these things. You, 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 who really cares, though? We have turned this into something that is far more important than it needs to be, and it, it's a real shame because that is something special. Imagine going to a local event, and because there was a sporting event going on, they decided to put up large screen TVs everywhere so the game was on so no one would miss the game. And I get it. You're try- What you're trying to do is to tell people you don't have to stay at home and watch the game. You can come and basically turn our party into a dud and watch the game there with the game on. I get it. You want people to show up because of the, this. But I don't. I, I think it, it is it is remarkable how sidetracked we were by that. And like I said, and that, to be able to sit back and realize that that was – that you know that the the damage that kind of just one television on one television on at an event kind of had with that because like i said i don't know if you're you're ever going to be able to recapture that kind of gold again because that was that was a fun event and it kind of just went right off the rails 9529466205 this just coming in this was just this afternoon the supreme court and i, I mentioned this remember in texas where uh, Greg Abbott and Ken Paxton have basically they're they're itching to try to create a fight with the federal government, and frankly, I think they want to open fire on federal troops or federal agents. I think I honestly think that the, these guys in Texas wanted that to happen. But I mentioned that the Supreme Court would I, I could not find a reason why the Supreme Court would allow the federal border to be usurped by an individual state which they didn't, although it was a hell of a lot closer than I thought it was going to be. A divided Supreme Court Monday allowed Border Patrol agents to cut razor wire that Texas installed in the U.S.-Mexican border. While a lawsuit over the wire continues, the justices, by a 5-4 vote, granted emergency appeal from the Biden administration, which has been escalating standoff with the border with Texas and objected to appellate ruling in, uh, in favor of the state. The wire along roughly 30 miles of the Rio Grande near the border of Eagle Pass is part of the Texas Governor Abbott Gabbett's uh, broader fight with the administration over uh, immigration enrollment uh, it has also authorized installing floating barriers on the Rio Grande near Eagle Pass. Now, I should mention that his troops 
his the Governor Abbott's troops sat and watched apparently a woman and two children drowned and did nothing to try to help them because Christians, I don't know. I you know, that's I have that's that's some ugliness, man, that they need to address. That's for sure. Um, in court papers, the administration said the wire impedes Border Patrol agents from reaching my, uh, migrants as they cross the river and that in any case, federal immigration laws trumps Texas's own efforts to stem the flow of immigrants in the country. We have to understand the fact that this was a 5-4 ruling just tells you how much libertarianism has in, in Croached in on the Republican Party. Libertarians used to be the freaking loon ball extremist right. And now you basically have, what is it, Alito, Kavanaugh, Thomas, and Gorsuch all sided with Texas. Um, the other justices basically were on the side of sanity. I want you to think about this for a second. Think about every municipality, county, state, on the border deciding how they enforce the border laws. You think you have a problem now with, say, drugs or migrants coming across the border. Wait till you have basically municipalities bought off by drug lords to allow as much drugs to come through the border as possible. And as much as Texas sits there and says, well, we're trying to do what they can't, the reality is what you're establishing is somehow states counties and municipalities should be able to supersede the federal government and if that does happen chaos will ensue but the reality is i think you guys want chaos to ensue so it allows you with your fantasy right-wing hyper you know hyperbole and such we'll take a break it's the matt mcneil show It's the Matt McNeil Show here on your Monday, 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. Let's get to the big news that broke yesterday. Uh, kind of unexpected. I thought people, I think many people thought DeSantis would make it through New Hampshire. But I think he saw that he was going to finish third, and I just didn't see any way in the world he wouldn't finish third uh, in South Carolina, which is, you know, the Nevada one's coming up, but that one's kind of weird. That one doesn't, people's names aren't ballots, needless to say. Um, I, I I think he saw the writing on the wall, that there's just no way for him to do this. And in a rare sense of of clarity from this man, as I said, he is most known for being called Meatball Ron, which still, I mean, I do not like Donald Trump, but Meatball Ron is a quality insult. Uh, Meatball Ron, his thigh-high hip waiter white boots like he is – um, a Dallas Cowboy cheerleader, and his inability to make facial expressions that look like he's human, now he basically has decided, yeah, this is not going to go well for me. Uh, DeSantis withdrew from the Republican race for the presidential nomination on Sunday, less than two days before the New Hampshire New, uh, Tuesday's New Hampshire primary. DeSantis, who came in second in the first in the nation Iowa caucuses on January 15th, but a distant second, released a nearly five-minute video on social media announcing he'd have suspended his campaign and was endorsing the frontrunner Donald Trump. Reminder, he was the guy who was supposed to save the party from Donald Trump. Now he's endorsing Trump himself. I, that, I, and I think that that's a in – case, in case he gets in, maybe he'll consider me for, um, you know, a uh, – you know, a cabinet position following our second place finish in Iowa. We've prayed and deliberated. Oh, stop with the praying. 
you know, you've been, been praying to God or Jesus because you don't do a damn thing those people told you to do. So maybe you're playing to some sort of, you know, you know, deity, kind of maybe like uh, that guy from Indiana to Jones and Temple of Doom. I don't know. The guy eats hearts and stuff. Maybe that's who you're praying to. Anyway, we'll, we, you know, potato, potato. <laughs> My disclaimer, you do or don't do whatever it is you do or don't want to do. I personally do not follow the guy from Indiana Jones in the, in the Temple of Doom where he was eating the hearts. I, I um, you know, I'm a little cautious of what I put in my body. I'm just going to let you know. Um, the, if there's anything I could do to produce a favorable outcome, more campaign stops, more interviews, I would do that. But I can ask our supporters to volunteer their time and donate their resources. We don't have a clear path to victory. No, you, that, yeah, we, we all knew that a while back, dude. We all knew that. I think the fourth or fifth complete turnover of your entire staff knew that a while back as well. When DeSantis said he had disagreements with Trump, including how he handled COVID-19, while President, the governor says he believes Trump is superior to President Joe Biden, he is my endorsement because I cannot go back to the old Republican guard of yesteryear or a repackaged form of a warmed-over corporatism that Nookie Haley represents. <laughs> what, uh, so you're just going to go you know, with the guy doing the Hitler cosplay. That's, that's, you, you're going with the guy doing the Hitler cosplay because things need to change. Yeah, they could change, and they could change horribly. Um, days over putting America last of kowtowing to large corporations, of caving to woke ideology are over. Listen to that. Listen to Republicans who basically themselves, their entire – I don't consider them running for office. I consider this their business model. And it is. It's their business model. They realized, wait a second here. I'm a complete idiot, a la – Marjorie Taylor Greene, I have very little chance at being able to be successful. Wait a second. If I just scream, I'm in a very Republican area. If I scream the most insane right-wing things the loudest, I can get elected to the U.S. House or even to the Senate, depending on the state. And I can sit there and I can basically work with all these large corporations and super wealthy people to make sure that they're represented and I'll keep getting campaign donations until I want to retire, and then I'll get this cush lobbying gig while my entire family has, you know, executive board positions with all these major companies and will be living high on the hog. I mean, that's their business model. That is your modern Republican business model. And, you know, so for him to out there saying kowtowing to large corporations, caving to woke ideology are over. That is, that is, you had better, this is Republican Party telling corporate America, you had better do what we tell you to do or else. And this is, has been, and this is not the first time, I mean, DeSantis himself went after Disney, one of the largest, I think might be the largest employer in his state. And yet they basically feel as if the day of just, you know, you know corporations are people my friend are over it's corporations need to be reined in if they're not doing what we say and maybe this is just the natural evolution of it all where it's you've got these vulture capitalists who are looking around at these other companies who are you know and saying you know how do i how do i take down say a disney well basically maybe we used to have the government turn on them turn them into persona non grata and then weaken them any way we can through social media, and then basically we can take them over and crash and burn and and feast on the carcass. That's, that's kind of the, maybe that's where they're going with it. Um, 
Haley, uh, speaking at a campaign event in New Hampshire, said she wishes DeSantis well and noted the Republican primary is now just her and Trump. There are 14 people in this race. Now, uh, there were 14 people in the race, and there's a lot of fellas. All the fellas are out except for this one, she said, according to a video posted to X, formerly known as Twitter. And this comes down to what you want. Do you want more of the same or do you want something new? Haley said in a written statement that the campaign for the Republican nomination is far from over. Um, okay. Um yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> for you, maybe. I, 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 I think it is relatively. I don't know. I, New Hampshire and South Carolina might you get your reprieve. You get to Super Tuesday, you're just going to get wiped across. Yeah, it, it's going to be over at that point. The Trump campaign thanked DeSantis for his endorsement and maligned uh, Haley in a written statement, which uh, you can tell that didn't come for Trump. It was written. Nikki Haley is the candidate of the globalists and Democrats who will do everything to stop the America First movement. Really, just that's the, the, for them. It just tells you this. This whole thing just tells you everything about where the Republicans are. That, that you know, the most evil thing you can. She's the candidate of the Democrats. Well, isn't Joe Biden? Forget about Joe Biden. It's Nikki Haley now. And that's just you know, they have brainwashed a large portion of the population into sure you can shut down every hospital in my local community make sure i don't have a decent job to pay get paid anything and the water supply in the local rural community has been poisoned by nitrates and do nothing to stop that but at least it's not a democrat that kind of thing yeah uh i will let me step back here you know it's interesting because nikki haley might have a chance if she did what she really needs to do, and that is embrace that moderate Republican that's been alienated and say, hey, I am your voice. But the problem is, is all of these candidates on the Republican side have been terrified of actually doing that, of actually laying that path out. And I don't know why, because that's the low hanging fruit, the moderate Republicans who basically can't stand Trump, and there are a lot of them, about a third, maybe even maybe 40% of the Republican Party does not like Trump and are desperate. But they go into this whole thing saying, if I really attack Trump, then I've got no chance. And so it ends up being this pulled punch that doesn't work. Meanwhile, and I'm going to get to this in the next segment, meanwhile, there is this movement to try to do this no-labels party Uh, Yeah, I don't think that's going to work either. We'll take a break. Come back. It's the Matt McNeil Show. Broadcasting this evening on WCPT 820 Chicago's Progressive Talk. This afternoon, it's live on AM 950, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota. It is the Matt McNeil Show. Good to have you with us today. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. I mentioned Haley. Let me talk a little bit about Dean Phillips. So, okay, for the folks in Chicago who are listening right now, you may not. Dean Phillips is the representative from Minnesota 3. I actually, he's my house rep. Now, he wasn't my house rep the first time he ran. I was with Ilan Omar in Minnesota 5, uh, but I got redistricted in 2020, after 2020, into Minnesota 3, and he's been my house rep. I had him in, I've had Dean Phillips in my studio when he first ran, and I did an interview with him, and he was, he sounded like he was Paul Wellstone revisited. I mean, he was trying to do this, you know, kind of, you know, leftist populism, which is, it's amazing where he's at today. And I can tell you right now, there is very few people 
in this district right now in Minnesota 3 who are happy with Dean Phillips. Most of the people in this district are pretty livid with him, and I think he sees that because we don't see a thing from him. I mean, he doesn't really – sure, he's, he's, he's in the House and the Senate, but, I mean, he's, he's something very different. And I mentioned in, – in, and once again, just sort of a little background information. Back in, in early 2022, before that election – he came on out, and this is, once again, not even two years into Biden's first term, was out there saying, Joe Biden shouldn't run again. And immediately, immediately, at least here in the state of Minnesota, every news outlet was running and putting a microphone in front of the governor's face and you know the attorney general's face and saying, you know, the guys that were running for office and say, do you agree that Joe Biden shouldn't run again? I said, dude, this was an unforced error. There was nothing saying you had to do this before the 2022 election was over. But yet he's been on this path and it's hard to kind of figure out where he's going with this. Um, in case you missed it, he is going to basically, um, he's going to basically be running in New Hampshire and because Joe Biden's not on the ballot in New Hampshire, it's he's probably going to have a um, a fairly good showing. So it's, we need to talk a little bit about him. About 40% of voters in New Hampshire are officially undeclared for either party, can vote in whichever primary they choose, according to the latest campaign dispatch from uh, the news ahead of tomorrow's vote. What makes them a prime target for a guy like Minnesota represent, U.S. Representative Dean Phillips is hoping to capture a big slice of the never-Trump Republican crowd to prove that his centrist, no-label-style message has appeal. And I'm going to come back to that, by the way, here in a little bit. Nikki Haley going after the same voters, never Trump Republicans and Biden adverse Democrats in the hopes of putting, proving there's a viable Republican alternative to Trump. If only one of them were running, there's a good chance they'd capture enough of that undeclared middle to build some momentum. But more likely outcome is that they'll split those votes between them while the more committed partisans stick with their perspective standard bearers. And so the two candidates hoping to shape things up the status quo will only end up in, uh, entrenching it further. I actually think my prediction tomorrow in New Hampshire is that the majority of those independents will actually go towards Nikki Haley because, frankly, I think the people that hate Donald Trump are far larger and far more um, more active than the people that dislike Joe Biden. And, I, and, and once again, from our perspective here, I think that the, in Minnesota – the, the, the Dean Phillips, what he's trying to do here against Joe Biden is misguided at best, I think is the best way to say it. I will say there's this little nugget, too. Um, yeah, there the, was out there. What was it? He um, apparently open AI bot. <laughs> apparently, Dean Phillips had an open AI bot. They banned the developer behind the bot that mimicked Democratic White House hopeful Representative Dean Phillips. The suspension is the first known instance of the maker of ChatGPT that was restricted all the use of artificial intelligence in political campaigns. OpenAI suspended the account of a startup called Delphi, which had been contracted to build a Dean bot. The Washington Report reported on Saturday, DeanBot, which would talk to voters in real time via website, was taken down by the startup following the suspension per the post. The bot stemmed from Silicon Valley entrepreneurs Matt Krisiloff and Jed Somers, who started a super PAC in support of Phillips. The super PAC, We Deserve Better, has gotten $1 million from Bill Ackman, the billionaire head fudge manager who's garnered recent headlines for standing among the handful of billionaires publicly debating the merits of and legality of DEI uh, initiatives, um, uh, diversity, you know, um, inclusiveness, 
and equity. Uh, you know, which once again, it just tells you everything there. Uh, a bunch of white guys saying, hey, wh- why are we talking about diversity, equity, and inclusiveness? Uh, yeah. Anyone who builds our tools must follow use- usage policies, says a spokesperson for OpenAI. So basically, they created this robot version of Dean Phillips, which, I mean, hard to tell. Uh, we recently approved uh, removed a developer account who was knowingly violating the API usage policies. Um, the, basically, so it, it's... It seems like they were doing it for him. That this was this was something that was created for Phillips by his allies to, I guess, make it seem like he was more accessible. A chat GP, a chat AI. Um, he's also now putting out the idea of a third party candidate, Democratic presidential primary challenger Dean Phillips has told the local paper, the Star Tribune up here in Minneapolis, St. Paul, that if he ran as an independent or third-party candidate, he'd be paired on a ticket with a staunch Republican such as Ron DeSantis and effectively siphon away votes from Don, Donald Trump. By the way, that never has, has come back to haunt us, a.k.a. Uh, how was the theater, Mr. Lincoln? Um, yeah, it's, you know, you, you, you put yourself with a polar opposite of your agenda on the same ticket. It can come back badly and screw that up. I understand you're trying to show we're unified, but you know, I don't know. And by the way, my guess is this no labels party, Dean, they won't want you on the top of the ticket. They want you as the vice president so that they can basically try to trick as many Democrats. I'll get back to that in a second here as well. Uh, he's challenging Joe Biden right now. He remains committed to running for the Democratic nomination. If he loses in America's face with a Biden-Trump general election manage, uh, rematch, Phillips left open the possibility of running on a bipartisan unity ticket under the banner of a centrist group, the No Labels, which is considering an independent ticket. No Labels has reportedly tried to recruit Democratic U.S. Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, former GOP Maryland Governor Larry Hogan. The group has also floated former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, but she rejected the idea as she's challenging Trump. Is, there's the difference between Democrats and Republicans. Republicans are like, no, I'm challenging this guy, even though she's got no chance. And here's Dean Phillips saying, well, if you don't do it, I, you'd better vote for me or I'll try to destroy Joe Biden as a third party candidate. And it's, it just the, 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 the weak spine nature of Democrats shines through once again. Ugh. Uh, asked about a theoretical Phillips Haley pairing, Phillips said he probably would be appealing enough, wouldn't be appealing enough to conservatives. So he's saying he wants a DeSantis or a Vivek Ramaswamy. Okay, that's not a no labels ticket. That's a Republican two ticket. It doesn't matter who they put it on the top of the ticket. It was someone who would draw votes for Donald Trump, then it'd be an unmitigated disaster. Uh, Phillips said he added that his party should recognize the little label ticket could be a final last ditch effort to save America from a second Trump presidency. There, no, it, it's it's you're almost. I'm not saying you're going to guarantee a second Trump presidency because I'm going to get into that here in a second. But I'm saying the the most the biggest threat to this country about a Trump presidency is you. Now, let's talk about this no labels thing, and let's talk about the failure of the Democrats, whether it's Joe Manchin or Kristen Cinema or Dean Phillips. One of the things that has become clear, which is the game plan of the people who want to push conservative politics, is it seems to me, and this is just from outside looking in, a perspective view, it seems like what's happening is these far-right corporate ventures 
are dangling a lot of cash and incentives to a handful of moderate Democrats to basically be the 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 gum in the works to basically stop legislation from getting through major change from getting through you know you know upset you know Biden's policies whatever the case may be and they give them tons of talking points of I'm just doing due diligence yeah it's sort of crap but the reality is is that it seems to me that this is this is their game plan and it's working it's working as long as we have this relatively divided government that's close to being divided. All you need is one or two votes. Now, Manchin's different. Manchin clearly was being manipulated for his own daughter's corporate. You know, the, you know, there is a reason why he was there. He was basically trying to do everything to stop his daughter from holding EpiPens out as a, you know, well, maybe some people can't afford life sort of thing. He, he's a jackass. But there is this there is this mentality that there is this massive middle of the road that is upset with both sides. And you want to know the truth is that's, I, I don't think that that's true. I, I don't think that that's true. What you guys don't have the guts to do, and this goes back to what I was talking about with Nikki Haley. There is a large portion of the Republicans who do not like Trump. Sure, there are some independents who may be in the middle, but what what are the things that people want today? What are the things they want their government to start delivering to them? Well, they don't want the government taking away rights, a.k.a. getting rid of Roe v. Wade or limiting abortion, uh, women's right to choose what kind of health care they can choose. That clearly, that's not that's not middle of the road. I mean, although the Republicans are frantically trying to erase their thirty years of saying that no options, no 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 exceptions for you know an abortion policy. Now they're trying to we're kind of really moderates now. No, that's kind of a you know mainstream Democratic progressive thing. How about health care for all? I think we've all after the pandemic have come to realize. You know, affordable health care should not be something which is only for the haves, not the have-nots. That people should be able to get basic health care. And right now in this country, there's a lot of people that are fighting against that. But most people, I think, in this country want to have the ability to get medical care without having to lose their house, their farm, their lifestyle, their business, whatever the case may be. Um, I, would, I would say that there's a lot of people that want you know, make sure there's clean water. You know that you know clean water, clean air. I mean, we are we are clearly in the middle of a climate change issue, which is creating massive problems. But we also, at the same time, are dealing with environmental catastrophes that have been created by the corporate America that we have today, which is the water supply being poisoned or the the the, the air being toxified. And I think most people don't want that. They don't want kids coughing all the time. The reality is that I think the majority of Americans are starting to see the progressive agenda and realizing I'd rather have a a fair wage because they're fighting for fair wages. They're not the ones out there saying, you're a lazy person. Go out there and work for $4 an hour. That's the Republicans. Most people want a decent wage, some decent benefits. God forbid if they get sick, they can take a sick day. God forbid if they get really sick, they can go get medical care. That's what people want today. But there is this narrative out there that this it's the middle of the road. 
the middle of the road in this country right now would be a middle-of-the-road Reagan Republican in 1980. And that's the truth. The middle of the country, the middle of the country right now, we've shifted so far to the right because of the media, because of this far-right agenda that's been pushed upon us. Dean Phillips isn't trying to get the middle. He's trying to win over the moderate Republicans. And he's trying to make it seem like, well, there's all these people that don't like Joe Biden. No, most most Democrats actually do like Joe Biden. And when when told, okay, your choices are Donald Trump and Joe Biden, well, guess what? They want to go with Joe Biden. And so their narrative, their selling point, they're trying desperately to push this false narrative that what you have to do if you want to be successful is you better vote for me as a third party, uh, as the other option in the Democrats, or else I'm going to torpedo the election for Joe Biden, and we're gonna, I'm going to run with Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy as a no-labels candidate? Come on, you're just, what you're doing right now is showing us you're desperately trying to find some way to appeal to moderate Republicans. Because the reality is, if you wanted to run someone on the left of the party, I think they'd have more traction than you would with a Dean Phillips. And that's just reality right now. And so this is, we need to make sure we understand. Part of this is millionaires and billionaires that are looking for a spoiler candidate to help hand Trump another election. But on the other side of it, I think that this is just people that are delusional about where this country's at trying to sell us another crap sandwich. I'll take a break. Come on back. It's the Matt McNeil Show. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show. When I see a guy like uh, a billionaire hedge fund manager who's against diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives being implemented as a backer of Dean Phillips, can we say Dean Phillips is a Democrat anymore? I mean, you know... I'm sure the Democratic Party's had some people out on the, you know, I almost call them light Republicans. I mean, and, and it's not a surprise as the Republican Party has moved further and further to the extremist right. The, the guys that used to be right on the edge, the real moderate Republicans, they looked at their party, said, there's no way on the planet I'm going to win a primary against these clowns. And so they said, well, I'm now a Democrat. Or like if you're in Maine, you claim you're an independent <laughs> because that flies in Maine. And but they claim a lot of these guys claim that they're Democrats and basically ran, you know, and and, and especially in red districts were able to run and, you know, were able to get seats. But the reality is that even more moderate Democrats, I mean, Tim Walls is the governor of Minnesota. You, of course, he he basically used to be the congressman for the Minnesota one district. He was a moderate congressman. He's a moderate Democrat. Absolutely. But two things that he's done. When, back when he was in Congress, I, get, I asked him about um, food for the hungry, and he gave one of the best answers I've ever heard. Just went down there talking about it. And he talked about it simply from a farmer supply issue, a local farmer supply being able to get their product into the hands of the hungry people. They get paid. Hungry people get food. Win-win across the board. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? And I'm like, damn straight. What a, it was a great answer. It was one of my favorite interviews I've ever done with any politician was that interview. 
But the other thing I want to mention about Governor Walls is that in Minnesota, one of the things you've heard is we passed this amazingly progressive list of laws and rules that came on out of the Minnesota House and Senate that were controlled by the Democrats and went to Governor Walz's desk, many of them with a one-vote majority. And as a moderate Republican, he signed pretty much every one of them outside of one, the Uber pay bill. But pretty much everything else, you know, women's rights, gay rights, transgender rights, you know, just across the board, the guy signed all of them. Guy signed every one of them. Now he's you know he's on board with with Joe Biden, and he but but at the same time he's also on board with the Democratic Party. And the question I've, I've I've said to people is if Dean Phillips was the governor of Minnesota at that point, and all those bills came to his desk, would he have signed all those? No, I have zero doubt that he'd probably have vetoed half of them, saying these are too extreme, and only ones that basically you know, you know, dictated his, his agenda were the ones that would have gotten passed. And I'm going to tell you bluntly, Walls did sign things that he didn't necessarily agree with, but he said, House and Senate, send it to me. I'm going to pass this. I I think Dean Phillips is a horse being whipped. He doesn't see that the, the, the whippings coming from people that are either just Moderate Republican idealists who think that they can unify the moderate Republicans behind a Democratic candidate uh, when, like I said, when the the best person that had the the best chance to do that is Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley actually had a chance to do this, but her reluctance to embrace this and really go for the jugular on Trump. I mean, you got to dig through a few folds there, but still, you know, her reluctance to do that is going to end up costing her. Dean Phillips thinks that you can go on out there and say, and this is why he's suggesting a Ron DeSantis or a Vivek Ramaswamy. He's trying to look at these moderate Republicans and say, see, I'm not nearly as different from you. But is there any freaking Democrat on the planet who would sit there and say, wow, Vivek Ramaswamy is running with Dean Phillips? I think I like the cut of their jib. No, no one's going to do that. So this is only, this is either the people that are whipping the the Dean Phillips horse are either idealists who think that they can somehow unify the moderate Republicans to correct Trump, not to win, but to basically force them back into his, force him back into their camp. Or it's basically Trump people, my suspicion on this Bill Ackerman and that he's one of them, considering that he's against DEI initiatives is to to basically create this false narrative that here's the middle-of-the-road candidate. If you're lining up with Ron DeSantis or Vivek Ramaswamy, you're not middle-of-the-road. You're Republican, too, electric boogaloo. That's what you are. And, and, you know, I know that the mainstream media are a bunch of lazy jackasses that don't, like I said, my God, how many times this weekend did Donald Trump misspeak? If Joe Biden did one of those, one of those this weekend, every media outlet in the country would be like, boy, Joe Biden's losing his cognitive ability. Donald Trump does six in a freaking speech, and it's like, well, you know, sometimes talking is hard. Ugh. But they're about to come out and tell you, really, America wants a middle-of-the-roader. And Dean Phillips and Vivek Ramaswamy, there's middle of the road. No, they're not. And I feel sorry for Dean Phillips because, like I said, he's just the latest of the Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin to a point, you know, dupes, dupes 
who basically get enticed by millionaires and billionaires dangling carrots in front of them to basically say, oh, I, uh, sure, I can torpedo health care. I can, I can torpedo, uh, you know, a, an education bill. I can, I can torpedo, uh, you know, a, a food bill. I, I can do that. You know, and, and, and they convince him he's moderate. Reminder, when Dean Phillips the other day had to update his DEI initiatives on his website, the same guy said, we're educating him right now. That tells you everything right there. It's not about winning. It's not. It's about making sure Trump wins or trying to scare the rest of the, the Republican Party into supporting them. This is not middle of the road. This is not the no labels party because let's face it, what, what this is is the disgruntled moderate Republican Party. And Dean Phillips thinks that he can basically present himself as that new fresh-faced kid. I guarantee you Dean Phillips won't resonate with him. I guarantee you, with the moderate Republicans in this country, if Dean Phillips was an alternate option to Joe Biden or Donald Trump, they'll still vote for Donald Trump because they're broken and this is just who they are. And he's, he's dumb enough to think that he's got some chance here because basically he's the horse that's being whipped. They're not moderate. They're not middle of the road. And the vast majority of people in this country want more progressive bills to come down the line. Absolutely. Chicago, have a good one. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Minneapolis-St. Paul, hour two up next. Hour number two of the show here on your Monday. Matt and Patrick here today. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. I have, I actually... Okay, so you know I've been recovering. I'm slowly getting better and better at trying to recover from the accident uh, from a year ago. And um, I I decided to try to up my running this weekend, and I made a mistake. So as a matter of fact, at the beginning of this last hour, I was talking about how that TV at that event kind of ruined – I don't want to say it ruined. It was still a nice event, but it really changed the dynamic of that event. And so it's Sunday morning. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to run before I go to church, which was fantastic, by the way. I do like Westwood Lutheran is a very good church. I like that one a lot. The, and, and I've got basically a window to go in there and, and, and run. And, I, and I, I, I run, I try to do three miles. And because I got into this discussion with my wife about the TV thing, I got there late and I had to go a lot faster than I wanted to go because I wanted to just kind of, you know, meander, you know, the whole thing and kind of be done with it. I ended up having to go really fast. I really, I Patrick, I have not felt great ever since, man. This is, I think, my age basically saying, oh, old man, you need to go get a pickleball hand, you know, racket. That's what you're up to now. Oh boy, the pickleball <laughs> recommendation. I pickleball. It's not so much an annoying sound as you think it is, old man. Oh God. Uh, I, so I've been a little off, but I, I, I still managed to have a pretty good weekend because uh, I did the event on Saturday. And we went out and did that. It was good fun. I went went to church, got a run, and went for a lovely hike down uh, the Nine Mile Creek Trail yesterday. It was nice to get out after it's been cold for a while. Although this weather we're going to have here is just weird that's coming down the line. Also, I went to the Guthrie and I went and saw 
art, which is a wonderful little play. I had not heard about it. It's French, and they actually have a translator. And I want to give kudos to the guy that did the translation because it, it, it clearly came across beautifully. And it's a three-person play. It's a one-act, about, about 85 minutes. It's a three-person play, very character-heavy, very script-heavy. It's, 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 it's really well done. And something happened during this, this play. So there is a scene, and I, I'm going to be very careful how I describe this. There's a scene at what point you ha- they have to take a prop. One of the characters takes a prop out of his pocket and throws it to another person. One of the other three characters on this uh, on the stage. All right. There's and by the way, they should mention there's only three people on the stage, and it's just the audience. That's it. The guy pulls the prop from his pocket, chucks it to the other actor, falls off his hand, off the couch he's sitting on, and bounces into the audience. <laughs> I, there is, and there is this moment where the three actors on the stage all just kind of look down, like, "Oh, that's not how this is supposed to go." And without a, without missing a beat, the guy in the audience in the front row where this where this prop fell picks it up, just chucks it back, and the guy that was supposed to catch it just gives them the thumbs up, and they move on. Bravo! Improvisation when improvisation should not have happened. That's how you know your actors are really good. Oh, yeah, they are. And I want to say one of the best parts is at the end we did, gave him a standing ovation. It was fantastic. It's only there for one more week. It's only at the Guthrie one more week. Go see it. It's worth it. It's fit. It's cold. It's it's winter. Go to the Guthrie. It's it's where you need to go. Um but when they got their encore and they got off the stage, the the man who threw the the actor who threw the prop and the actor who lost the prop both in, took time to look at the guy and say thank you very much and do it. I've never seen. Oh, I can't. Have I ever seen anything like that before on a, on a pro level? No. On a pro level, no. But yeah, that's it was well done. Still didn't take anything away from the presentation. It was fantastic. Go see art over at uh, the Guthrie. Worth it for sure. Are you strapped in, Patrick? Do you got your? Do you have the producer chair seatbelt fastened? It is ready. We're about to get a little bit of hypocrisy whiplash here that is going to, I think, strain both of us. Okay. I think I know where this is going. Is it? Is it? Is it? Is it stubby? Yes, it is. It's stubby. Or as some people call him, Congressman Pete Stauber. Stubby. Oh, he's excited. Oh, is Petey excited? You can see in his bulbous head, it's turning red. It's Oh, he's excited. Stubby put out an announcement today. He has announced that the U.S. Department of Transportation has awarded the cities of Duluth, Minnesota, and Superior, Wisconsin with $1 billion to replace the Blatnick Bridge. The replacement bridge will address geometric deficiencies, increase capacity, and create a new Shared use path for cyclists, pedestrians, and access to both states easily. On this grant, Congressman Stubby stated, By connecting Toulouse, Minnesota, and Topuria, Wisconsin, the Black Deck Bridge has helped drive our Twin Points economy in the past six decades. <laughs> the Black Deck Bridge is aging, and it's restoring to is essential to ensuring continued economic success, which is why I have long fought for these funds. Securing the money to help replace this bridge has been a top priority 
for both states. I'm proud to have worked with my Minnesota, Wisconsin congressional colleagues to secure this critical investment. I look forward to seeing this project benefit countless industries, employers, healthcare patients, commuters, and tourists for years to come. <laughs> Not sure if he added the laugh at the end, but, you know, just for comedic reasoning. Yeah, there you go. Pete Stauber, Stubby, Congressman Minnesota 8th. One light little problem with this. He says he's worked really hard to get this. He voted against it. As a matter of fact, it did not take long for Governor Tim Walz to chime in. Oh boy, I hate to talk politics when there's good news to celebrate, but this is too brazen to ignore. Mr. Stauber voted against every screw, steel beam, and concrete pier in this bridge. Luckily, Joe Biden worked with the Stauber's colleagues and got it done without him. Thanks, Joe. That's right. Pete Stauber absolutely worked against this project, voted straightforward against this project from being done. When he had the chance to say, you know what, there's some things in here I disagree with, but you know what, that Blatnik Bridge, that's important. He voted against it. And no, Pete Stauber then didn't go over on hands and knees and beg the president to please give us the money. No, the, the president worked with the Democrats. You know, Governor Walls, Governor Evers, go worked with them to basically get that money for that bridge. <laughs> it is insane he's trying to take credit for it. Now, granted, let's just be honest, his most ardent supporters are all like, yeah, thank God for Pete Stauber. No, Pete Stauber didn't do this. He is once again taking credit for something he purposely and intentionally voted against when he had the chance to authorize it. And it wasn't like some Republicans didn't vote for this bill. Some Republicans did and got it passed. But not Pete Stauber. Pete Stauber voted to kill that bridge. Pete Stauber voted to kill that bridge. For him today to act as if he is somehow the spearhead that makes sure that, that that project got accomplished. Shut up, you bulbous jackass. I'm referring to your head when I say this. It kind of is. It's got a look to it. Have you have, have you seen the rockets that come from Amazon? Never mind. I just, I just never mind. <sighs> There's just a certain – never mind. I'll, I'll leave it. I'll, I'll just talk to a barber. Um, yeah, Petey. Stubby. Dude, man. There is, there is, there is stupid and then there is Pete Stauber. Uh, the DFL quickly came on out. Pete Stauber is shamelessly trying to take credit for a project that is only possible because of law. He voted against the Blatnik Bridge is getting funded because the bipartisan infrastructure law that President Biden and Minnesota Democrats fought for, the same law that Pete Stauber voted against. Stauber's constituents deserve a member of Congress who will vote for common-sense bipartisan legislation like the bipartisan infrastructure law, not a hypocrite who pretends he did that. This is not the first time Stauber has claimed credit for projects for funding which he has voted against. Uh, I believe it was, didn't he do the airports up there? Yeah, he touted the airport grants. Uh, funded by the infrastructure bill that he voted against. He's like, oh, thank God we're getting these airports fixed. Well, not, 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 not don't thank you because you voted against them. But yeah, just 
I'm re- in the silence of my heart. I wanted it done. Well, they wanted you to vote for it. <laughs> that would have required me to vote with Joe Biden. I can't do that. Well, Joe Biden gave you the money now, and you're taking credit for it. But but you see, I'm expecting my followers to be stupid idiots and not understand what really happened. I think they're dumb. That's why I'm talking to them like this. Oh, Representative Stauber, is there anyone you can't offend? Uh, that's, That's what you get. You 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 apply for a substandard congressman. You're going to get them. Uh nine five two nine four six six two zero five nine five two nine four six six two zero five. I want to spend some time on this new report that's come on out, uh, and I saw this at the Reformer. Uh, it's from the Institute of Metropolitan Opportunity from the University of Minnesota Law School, explores differences in college access in the best and worst performing Twin Cities public schools. The report finds that the top 30 schools send roughly two-thirds of their students to a four-year program. All right. That's basically so the top 30 schools send roughly two-thirds of their students to a four-year program after graduation. While the bottom 30 schools, just 12% of the students go to a four-year program. Of those bottom schools, 22 are charter schools, compared to only five schools are the charter schools in the top 30, which I'm going to come back to that. we got to talk about the charter school issue here. Minnesota students are funneled into a dramatically separate life pathways from the moment they set foot in their high schools. The report authors write, this contrast where some children receive a golden ticket for prosperity and others head to dead-end education wall falls harshly along pre-existing lines of social and racial advantage. Can such a system be deemed adequate? Um, the three high schools with the lowest graduation and college enrollment rates are all geared towards serving students in precarious circumstances, including homelessness, food insecurity, or even teen parenthood. Nine of the 10 worst performing schools are charter schools, including City Academy of St. Paul, Augsburg Fairview Academy in Minneapolis, and Jennings Community School in St. Paul. The authors presented two theories on the poor outcomes at segregated schools. The first is that the lack of resources at lower-income schools, in part due to the racial wealth gap and segregated housing, is a reason for lower graduation and college enrollment rates. But closing the resource gap alone would not be enough to bring the lower-income schools on par with richer schools, the authors argue. The point in the second theory, that social networks are a major factor in student achievement as the key to closing the gap, The benefits of integration appear to flow through the social links between high- and low-income people, networks of opportunity, the authors write. Schools with strong networks of opportunity offer students a real chance to an improved life regardless of the student's own background. This is a continued problem that's been plaguing this country for centuries, really. I mean, it's it's interesting. You go down – when I was was down in New Orleans, there was a story out there – uh, we took a tour, and they got a very, very lovely tour that we took. And one of the stories they talked about was this one guy who was a former slave owner, and you know didn't give up his slaves willingly. But after the Civil War, he basically, you know, did you know he he basically you know wanted to make try to make some amends for what had happened, and he gave a ton of money to what was at that point an incredibly cash strapped, if even existing. New Orleans Public School District. And it was a fairly large donation, which ended up funding a lot of schools and gave them an opportunity. But once again, it was something that wasn't 
funded or was so grossly inadequately funded, the mere idea of just giving people the ability to learn how to read and write was pretty astounding. Now, it did go wrong. Uh, there is a statue you know, crediting this guy in one of the parks in New Orleans. And up until I think it was the 1970s, 1970s, they had a ceremony every year where kids from the public schools came up and, and laid wreaths and stuff at the, 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 at the statue. But only the, the, the white students went first and then the black students. And they finally realized, well, this is this is just, yeah, disturbing. So they stopped it. But the reality is, is this is how it's always gone. There's this, been this concept that schooling was something that was Little House on the Prairie. And, you know, it was to a point, but the education system has always been kind of grossly underfunded, and especially when it comes to dealing with schools with high racial makeups. And I have been somewhat critical of the charter school movement because I feel as if what you're seeing is not a real intention to make schooling better, but an opportunity for people to try to make some money off of a failing system. And people that have come at me have said, Matt, there are charter schools that do it right. And I'm not denying that. But as this report shows, the vast majority of the problems we're having in our education system right now seem to be going hand in hand, not with the public school system, although there are some public schools that definitely need some help. But a far bigger problem here is the charter schools. I'll take a break. Come on back. I want to get more into this because I'm going to go through this report a little bit and talk about some of the, the, the glaring problems that are there. And we can talk a little bit about what you think might be the option to fix this. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. Let's take a break. Come on back. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. So getting back to this study that just came on out, and once again, this was uh, done by uh, the Institute of Metropolitan Opportunity from the University of Minnesota Law School. Uh, they, 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 they go through this. I want to say that they do use some language which I think is a little hard because it seems like there's a little bit of an agenda going there, but I, I can understand why they do say this. Now, I want to make sure we're very clear about something. Um, there are the, people who should be going into the trades. If you don't want to go to college, don't go to college. Go into the trades. You're going to get more work than you ever dreamed of. The trade skills, carpentry, plumbing, you know, steel workers, welders, you know, y- y- you go into those jobs. And, and, and pretty much most unions have an apprenticeship program. They can get you through there. Uh, there are colleges or special technical schools that deal with this stuff. Don't be afraid to go into the trades. I, I am amazed at still to this day and age when people want to get a job that's going to deliver not only steady income but you know a lot of work that we don't talk more about the trades also there are a lot of people that will go and say to themselves I don't want to go to college I like working at a grocery store and I maybe I want to get into management in the grocery store more power to you more power to you you want to become a uh, a manager at a, a franchise and and maybe work your way up, maybe eventually get your own franchise, more power to you. There's a lot of different options here. This is only focusing on 
the results for kids going to four-year colleges. And I think so you're to a point missing something because if someone's going to the trade schools, they're going to have a good life. If someone decides they want to become an assistant manager at a department store as opposed to going to college, they're going to do okay for sure. So I think that there is some things that are not being addressed here, but looking at what they did address, summary of findings, the study examines college attendance patterns between graduates of Twin Cities high schools. It identifies huge disparities between numbers of college-bound students in top and bottom college placement schools in Minnesota. Key findings include the top 30 golden ticket college placement high schools send 66% of students uh, to a four-year college after four years. The bottom 30% dead-end college placement schools send 12% of students to a four-year college after four years. Once again, language, not sure golden ticket and dead-end are necessarily helpful in this circumstance. And also, once again, this is only talking about four-year colleges. There's a lot of other job options and career paths people can be taking, which are just as good as anything you get from college. Over three of the four... Uh, over three in four students in the bottom 30 dead-end schools either fail to graduate in four years or attend no post-secondary education after their fourth year. So basically, over 75% of the students in those schools you know, failed to graduate in four years or basically graduate, and then they're done, which, once again, doesn't seem to factor in kids going into the trades, going into other job opportunities, but still. In the aggregate, top 30 golden ticket schools, 73% white, 9% black, 6% Hispanic. Bottom 30 schools are 16% white, 38% black, 13% Hispanic. Are the known problems we have had with racial, uh, you know, schools with a heavier racial um, makeup is not something new. It's been widely discussed. Of the top 30 golden ticket schools, five are charter schools. Now, once again, of the top 30 schools, five are charter schools. Some charter schools seem to do a very good job. I will say some of them are that do well kind of are geared towards very specific, you know, set of skills or backgrounds and stuff like that, which, you know, that, that it, it, there are some parameters there, which I don't know how much they factor them. But once again, of the top you know, we're talking about kids that go on to a four-year college degree, five charter schools in the top 30, all right? So basically one-sixth of the bottom 30 schools, 22 are charter schools. I want to repeat that. Of the bottom 30 schools, 22 of them are charter schools. The top 30 schools are disproportionately located in affluent suburban districts, through a handful such as Southwest High School are located in the two central cities. The bottom schools are overwhelmingly located in the two central cities with a handful located in Brooklyn Park, Brooklyn Center. One, St. Francis High School, is exurban. There's a strong correlation between a school's share of minority students and students in poverty and the school college attendance characteristics in that school. I think the opportunity to have free college is going to help a lot of those kids out, or at least gives them more of an option. There are va- And once again, this study seems to have happened before that took effect. There are vast opportunity gaps between the top and bottom schools. Dinah High School, which is the top one, graduated almost twice as many students into four-year colleges as the entire bottom 30 schools combined. It graduated 22 times as many students into elite or Ivy League schools as 
the bottom 30 schools combined. So once again, I want to just say those numbers because this is once again just Edina High School. Graduated almost twice as many students into four-year college as the entire bottom 30 schools. And as far as, you know, elite or Ivy League schools, 22 times more students from Edina went to those schools than in the bottom 30 schools combined. The attendance of, let's see here, the attendance areas for the top 15 traditional high school contains 18% of the region's housing units, but only 6% of the region's subsidized affordable housing. Only 2% of housing in these areas is subsidized and limiting access to lower income families into those schools. So basically saying that you know, even if you're a lower income person, there isn't even housing options in these school districts that you could take advantage of to get your child into those school districts. The attendance areas for the bottom 15 traditionally high schools, uh, traditional high schools contain 15% of the region's housing units, but fully 34% of the region's subsidized affordable housing. About 15% of all housing in these areas is subsidized, concentrating lower-income families into these schools. Which is, once again, part of the system because that's been the system for a long time. Good look at the redlining of how that, that affected a lot of this. And it still is affecting this stuff today. Um, I should mention here, I'm going to do this, and it's, it's sideways on this on this. This printout, so I'll do this. The, the top schools, Edina, Wyzetta, Moundsview, Matamini, Orono, Minnetonka. Uh, the first charter school shows up at number seven, Math and Science Academy Charter. Eastridge is eight. The Nova Classical Academy Charter comes in at nine. And then Eden Prairie comes in at number 10. Not a big surprise. What we're talking about here is of the top 10, eight of them are public school systems. Eight of them are public school systems. And they're in the wealthiest communities. They're flush with cash. The property values in those communities is dramatically higher than the property values in other communities. Um, and that, that's the top 30. Uh, once again, and, and as, you, as you heard, pretty much all located somewhere in the suburbs of, of the Twin Cities metro area. The bottom schools, charter school number one, and once again, there's the top schools, the top three schools. They're very clear to say that these are dealing with kids with other issues, homelessness, uh, pregnancy, um, you know, food insecurity, and stuff. So there's other things going on here. So there is a legitimate question of how fair is it to these schools when they're dealing with kids who are dealing with life problems, which would give adults a lot of fits. So the uh, Minnesota Internet Internship, Internship Center is the lowest scoring one. Longfellow Alternative in Minneapolis, Charter School Face-to-Face Academy, Charter School Augsburg Fairview, Charter School High School for the Recording Arts. Um, the six was the Paladin Career and Tech Charter School. The Jennings Experimental Charter School is seven. City Academy Charter School is number eight. Carver Pathways a Charter School is number nine. And, and it's tied for n- number nine with Northwest Passage, also a charter school. Of the top ten worst schools, nine of them are charter schools. Of the bottom 30 schools, 22 are charter schools. I'm going to take a break. I want to come back. I want to talk a little bit more about this because 
this is charter schools have always been a a a standard that the Republicans want to put into place, and I think. We, we can, like I said, I'm, I'm hopefully conveying some skepticism about this study. I think that the verbiage is wrong. I'm not sure exactly if it's fair to leave out the kids that are going into the trades or basically deciding, you know what, I'm not going to go to college. I'm going to work and just go right into the working sector right away. Those, I think, should be factored in. I'm trying to – I'm putting some out there. But one thing you cannot deny here is this – idea this notion that charter schools are somehow a better option than the public school system is just not true looking at this study and once again before i get before i get well my kids charter school is fantastic great but we're looking at overall results because i can go and say i can throw a dyna at you as far as a public school because no other school in the metro area does better than the public school in a dyna not one so I can do that too. But the reality is is that when you look at the overall makeup of this list, by far the schools that seem to be having the hardest time are the charter schools. And I don't know if this is something that we should be if, – if they're having a much harder time than the public schools are, even the public schools in the cities. And it should be noted, once again, these do this list does include the public schools in St. Paul and Minneapolis – and they're outside of the one, which was it, the Longfellow uh, alternate, uh, Alternative School in Minneapolis. That's the only public school in the bottom 10. So the public schools in Minneapolis and St. Paul, for the most part, are all performing better than these charter schools. We'll talk about that more when I come back. 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. It's the Matt McNeil Show on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. I have to tell you, one of the things I do like about this study is that it shows that the system, how stacked the system is for families who want to get out of these neighborhoods and get into other neighborhoods where they might have a chance, but because there aren't low-income housing options available to people in these other communities, and 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 that is a legit problem we have we have had people who have tried to go out there and say we need to keep more low income housing and sure everyone comes out and you know pats them on the back and you know this is a good thing but then then all of a sudden the cl- doors close and they say hey we do not want to have low income housing lower the property values of our community and so behind closed doors they kibosh it or what they do, and this is one of the things I've noticed that they're doing, is they'll, they'll create apartment complex. And they'll say, well, 20 of the units are designed for low-income housing. Okay, they're designed for it. But how are you making sure low-income individuals are getting access to those apartments exclusively? How, how do you make sure that that is the, the case? And, you know, many, many of these buildings, they just... It, they say they have it, but they don't really have anything rules in place. It depends on the municipality, really. And if there are requirements for that sort of thing, and if those requirements aren't there, guess what? That stuff doesn't get done. So I, I, I think this brings up a much larger issue that we need to have better housing choices for the lower class in all communities 
because the reality is is you're not going to solve this problem by basically putting up a wall around a school district and then saying, boy, oh, boy, why can't they get those people into better schools? Well, yeah. And sure, you have open enrollment and stuff like that. But for a lot of people, if you don't have a car, if you're low income, I mean, it's not nearly as easy as just going on out there and just open enrolling and making that happen. And some of the, and some people, I can tell you right now, I imagine there'd be some people that say that Edina had more low-income housing, that people would apply and get into lower-income housing and move down there because it would give their kids a better chance at an education. I think that without a doubt. And so, you know, and, and now you get to the point where especially people on the far right say, well, there's haves and haves nots, Matt. If they work hard, they can maybe get up here. You see, that's the problem is you want to ignore the system that's in place that's designed to prevent them from being able to climb out of one specific demographic and putting it into another one. And and that's the truth. That's just the reality of it. Once, once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's there. It's undeniable. It's there. And it's our dirty little secret because even white liberals don't really know how to freaking deal with this stuff. And when, when Betsy Hodges suggested maybe we should have lower-income housing go into all neighborhoods in Minneapolis, oh, my goodness, one of the more liberal cities in the country all of a sudden, what, well, I, I'm for it, but not in my neighborhood. The NIMBYs, not in my backyard. That being said, we've had now 20 years of Republicans chipping away at public education. And trying to make the argument and trying to make the, 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 the statement that somehow there are better options for the public that, that, you know, we, that we don't need to rely on this. And once again, I want to make sure we point out here that this is not just the usual suspects. Your Adonis, your Wyzettas, your, 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 you know, your Minnetonkas there. Washburn's in the top 30. Chaska's in the top 30. St. Louis Park's in the top 30. Hopkins is in the top 30. Lakeville North is in the top 30. Uh, uh, the Stillwater area. Jefferson, Bloomington, Jefferson. Southwest. Maple Grove. Now, once again, I would make an argument that when the, the biggest combiner there that's, that's across the board is that even when they're in the city, you're looking at schools that generally have a higher you know, income surrounding community. But this is this. There's a ton of public schools on this list. There are five uh, charter schools on this list. I mentioned earlier the Math and Science Academy Charter came in at number seven. Number nine was Nova Classical Academy Charter. Number twelve was the Saint Croix Prep Academy Charter. Number twenty-seven was Eagle Ridge Academy, and twenty-nine is Great River Charter. And Good for you. I mean, I, I, it's, 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 you know, I, it's, it's some places they do better. I'm not sure why, but it's the exception, not the rule. And that's something we have to come to grips with. Republicans want to, oh, we have open enrollment. Well, yeah, but if you're low income, open enrollment is not nearly as easy as you try to make it seem to be. Well, you have charter schools. Yeah, but the charter schools are not nearly as 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 optional as you can too and i should mention of the five charter schools that are mentioned two are in saint paul 
One's out uh, in the Stillwater area. One is out, it looks like, in Woodbury area. And one is, I believe, in the very southern part of Minnetonka. So once again, although there are some good charter schools, are they really accessible for someone who's low income in the city of Minneapolis? By far, the charter schools are not getting the job done when compared to the public schools. And once again, I'm not talking about private schools per se. Private schools, you want to send your kid to a private school, you have the wherewithal, the means. Um, yeah, that, that's your choice. That's, you know, that's different. I'm talking particularly about the war against the public school system, which has been waged with the idea of open enrollment and charter schools. And once again, the problem with open enrollment, because once again, what this study shows is the problem is a, a big part of the problem is, is that these schools, which are the good schools, do not have housing options for the lower income individuals to be able to go in and move into the district and take advantage of them. And you can have open enrollment all day long. It still is not an option if you can't get your kid to a school that's 15 miles away. On the other side of it, and sure, there are some neighborhoods, some communities where you can pay a few extra bucks and you get a bus to come pick up kids. But if you're a low income, you might not have that extra money to pay for a bus to do this. So the open enrollment stuff is, you know, from what I've seen, it's it's not doing what it was told we were told it was going to do, which was that it was it was going to be designed to to basically give that kid who's having a hard time getting the, the science degree that they want, their school doesn't have the science program. This school does open enrollment. You know, a lot of those kids don't get the chance because the open enrollment spots are taken up by kids who are not needy but are the best bud of someone who's already going to the school or in a specific part of the town. Once again, I, 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 I can't say for sure the policy of Edina, but there are parts of the city of Edina which are not in the Edina school district. And I think they do give – I think – I want to be very clear – think. I'm not quite sure about this. They give priority to Edina addresses to open enroll into Edina. Well, that doesn't help anyone who's lower income in sitting in Minneapolis. But it's the charter schools. And this is, once again, this is the baby of the Republican Party. That the, the charter schools, we can take the public money from a public school system, give it to a private company, and have them run a charter school, and you're going to get just the success rate that you'll see in other schools. And the reality is you're just not. And this isn't the first time I brought this up. I have been on this radio station now for almost 14 years. <laughs> I have been on this radio station for almost 14 years, and I would say at least 30 times I've brought up this idea that the charter schools just don't seem to be developing in the same way that the public school that they said they would replace the public schools with. Once again, the argument is not that you know, it's just an option. It's that you could get a much better education with a charter school. We need to divert money from the public school system to charter schools because they can get a better education. Once again, there are a handful of schools that seem to do okay, but the vast majority don't. And it seems like this is a chronic problem which exists. And this year alone, I believe we've had multiple charter schools fail where all of a sudden the kids are in a bad situation. 
we have to really think about a lot of this. And you, there, one of the things I've talked about many times when it comes to education funding is that the prob, one of the problem is, is, is that it affects both rural schools, the most rural schools and the most inner city schools, is it's a funding issue. And this idea that the, the funding system we have is great for some school districts, is absolutely fantastic for some school districts. Edina, Minnetonka, Wyzetta, you're rolling with cash. You are rolling with cash. Henceforth, you can get brand new computers on a regular basis, and all the kids can have computers, and you can have specialized wings and all these great clubs and all these great things. And this is not a criticism. Those are great schools. They have a lot to offer. And, and you see the result. You get 66% of these kids go get a four-year college degree. But you can't, we can no longer look at the funding equation that is clearly broken when it comes to lower-income inner-city school districts as well as also when it comes to outstate rural districts where you're requiring a handful of farmers to basically cut more and more of their checkout to basically fund a school district. Or shutting down that school district and making a farmer drive their kid 40 minutes in one direction to go to school. That doesn't help anyone. We need to revisit the funding, but as well, I, okay, we need to revisit the funding issue. We need to revisit the reality that the charter school system, as it was sold to us, that it was going to be a viable option and maybe even better than the public school system, that that's just not true. And sure, it might give a parent a feeling of control, and I'll say it might give a parent a feeling of control over their kid's education, but the results overall are just substandard when it comes to the public school system. We also, this study does a think of a wonderful service to us to point out that lower income housing and the accessibility to that in these better school districts is not an option. And until we make it an option, we can't sit there and act like that is not part of the problem. Well, they should just do better there. Well, that's really easy to say because I can come back with my final point I'm going to make on this, and that is this. I sat down with my kids. My wife sat down with our kids. We sat down with our kids, and we helped them with homework. We, we were there. We took the time. But white privilege, I understand that's not what most people have. You have, you, you have a situation where you have a parent that can take time out of their day. They're not working two jobs. They're not working a third job. They're not trying to get a meal on the table or trying to get a few hours of sleep or trying to get the laundry done. That's not what we were at. And so I can understand that it's not what everyone can do. But if you can work with your kids, you're going to have a great opportunity to get your kids out of a school district and get them into whatever career field they want to. Once again, fault of this report, where's the trades? Where's the people that just want to go into the workforce? But that being said, I think that we have to start realizing that we are not going to solve this problem by just pointing our fingers and wagging our fingers at the Minneapolis and St. Paul school districts and saying to them, you need to do better unless we're willing to actually do what we need to do to do better, which is create a better system that's better funded, that is better marketed 
and is giving us more opportunities to get people into these better schools where they're going to have a better chance at graduating and going off to college. Once again, let me also add one thing I mentioned earlier. The fact that we have free college now in the state for lower-income people, I think this report clearly happened before that. I've got high hopes that 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 new law will help people get into college. I do. 952-946-6205-952-946-6205. Take a break. Come back. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show. Uh, Patrick, I'm about to get into probably the most controversial thing I'll say all week here on a Monday, and that is I'm going to still stand by this. I believe Joe Maurer will get in on the first ballot tomorrow. They'll announce that at 5 o'clock tomorrow afternoon for the uh, Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. I would not vote for him because I I think he's close. I think he's close, but I don't think he's he's there. I... The, based on the ballots that have been released so far, it almost looks like it'd be an upset for him to not get in at this point. Well, a lot of the people that don't, they make the point, the people that haven't released them generally are the people that generally don't put too many people down on the ballots, you know, because they don't want to have to deal with this. So, uh, Maurer was an MVP. He's a six-time All-Star. He's a three-time Gold Glove. He's a five-time Silver Slugger. He's a three-time batting title. I'm conceding all of those things. He is, he is um, from... 2006 to 2012, he was a monster. For seven years, he was an absolute monster. Uh, although one of those years was cut short. He basically only played half the season. But he was just unbelievable in that stretch. And there were two or three years in there, he was undoubtedly the best player in baseball. Undoubtedly. And you're saying to yourself, but Matt, come on. Wait, you, you yourself are making a good argument here. Yep, you're right. Uh, for 2004-2005, you know, he showed some potential at times, um, but he, play, you know, he, he played 35 games in 2004, had a 308 batting average, but that's just 35 games. 131 games, he did 294, but then he really took off in 2006. 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, seven years. He played great. Now, if I was to bring someone in today at 21 years old and say for till 28, they were going to be one of the best players in, in baseball. But after that, they hit okay. I mean, not you know some years better than others. I mean, he he did have uh, the year two sixty one, two sixty five, two seventy seven. Those were his batting averages there. The problem is, is that once you know he couldn't play catcher anymore, he went to first base. And I just want to remind people how bad he was at first base in those first few years. And I can say this because. My son at that point was just coming out of Little League and going into the next levels of baseball, <clears throat> and he was an on-and-off first baseman. And a lot of the things about positioning and stuff, my son, who was a young teen at the time, said he's not in position correctly. He's not playing the position correctly. He not, he's, out of con, he's out of position. For at least two years there at first base, he was one of the worst first basemen in the league. He was. He got to a mid-tier first baseman, got that way, DH'd a lot of games as well. But that, that ha- you're talking about career stuff. That has to be factored in. Also, his postseason numbers are paltry at best. When it counted the most, he didn't really 
deliver. Now, I clearly will factor in all that stuff I said. MVP, six-time All-Star, three-time Gold Glove, five-time Silver Slugger, three-times batting title. Those pretty much all happened between 2006-2012. This is the problem with Joe Mowers. Where do you put him? If you just want to ignore the end of his career, well, he's a, he's a slam dunk Hall of Famer. But if you look at his whole career, which is what you're supposed to do when you're talking about the Hall of Fame, I, I just I have a hard time putting him in there because it just the latter part of his career was not great. It was not it wasn't Hall of Fame in my mind. But that's me. He's gonna be a, he's gonna make it tomorrow. He will. Uh, Native Roots Radio is up next. Have a good one. Till tomorrow. See ya.